Well, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Mary Magdalene had followed Jesus along the shores of the lake, over green Galilean hills, through mountain passes, in and out of villages, down dusty city streets. A few days ago, she had followed him up a hill called Calvary where she saw Jesus undergo unspeakable horrors. And now she's followed him again. She's tracked his crucified corpse to a tomb, not far from the site of his execution. She's carrying with her oils and spices. Her goal is to dress the body for burial. This is the last time she'll follow Jesus, or so she thinks. I'm sure Mary began following Jesus the day he saved her life. Somewhere along her journey, maybe as a young child, her life started spiraling downward. Insecurities led to flirtations, which led to promiscuity, which led to heartache, which led to abuse, which led to a deep despair. At some point, Mary gave up on ever having the good life. To escape her pain, she tried to self-destruct. She gave herself over to darkness and deception. When Mark's gospel mentions Mary, he identifies her with eight words that sum up her entire life, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Imagine a life so void of hope that it had become the home to seven devils. But when Jesus touched Mary's troubled life and tormented heart, he drove away that pack of demons to the point where they were afraid to ever return. Jesus gave Mary a new lease on life. And Mary followed Jesus. As the disciples moved from place to place, it always comforted her to see Jesus out in front. Mary would inch up close whenever he taught so that she wouldn't miss a word. Whenever Jesus encountered the masses, she'd always find a good vantage point where she could once again be amazed by his miracles. In the years that she followed Jesus, she never knew where she might be the next day, but she always had the sense that she was going places. But as she followed Jesus to the tomb, this was different. For Mary was grieved. When she looked out in front, Jesus was no longer leading the pack. 
She'd never hear him teach again. She would never see him heal again. Rather than going places, she felt lost and confused and empty. And that's where we find Mary now in verse 11. She's outside the rock tomb with tears streaming down her cheeks. She suffered a terrible loss. Mary weeps. Peter and John, they've already investigated. Someone has taken Jesus' body. Mary has returned to the scene of the crime. She's been shocked by it all. For some reason, she looks inside again. And this time, the tomb is no longer vacant. There are two angels. They ask her why she's weeping. And in the midst of the conversation, she hears footsteps. She turns. It's a man. She thinks it's a gardener. She asks him if he's the one who's moved the body. And when he speaks her name, it all clicks. He says, Mary. And it was the way he said it. For no one spoke Mary's name the way Jesus did. Hey, when her parents called her name, it was to scold. The men in her life, they spoke her name and then treated her like trash. Her neighbors said Mary only when they wanted to judge. But when Jesus spoke her name, the tone in his voice conveyed hope and acceptance. When Jesus said Mary, she knew that she was loved. And notice how Mary responds to Jesus. You know, there were varying degrees of respect that a Jew could show his or her teacher. At the lowest level, you would use the abbreviation RAB, R-A-B. To add respect, you would use the term rabbi. But the highest honor was Mary's reply, Rabboni. Suddenly, it dawns on Mary. Her days of following Jesus are not over after all. He will still be her teacher. He will still be her north star. She figures Jesus will always be in her field of vision. She'll never be out of earshot. She'll see him and hear him and hold him and follow him just as she has before. Mary is so relieved. She falls at his feet and she clings to Jesus with all her might. She had seen him crucified. Now she'll never let go of him again. I'm surprised she didn't knock him over. She grabs him so tightly. Mary is determined to lock arms and hold on to Jesus forever. But that's when Jesus speaks cryptic words. You don't expect a rebuke at this point, even a gentle one. You figure he'll encourage her grip. And yet Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. You know, for years I misread this verse. I assumed that Jesus was waving off Mary for some reason. Was there something peculiar about a resurrected body? Is holiness harmful? Could the risen Lord somehow be radioactive? I figured that a risen body was too holy to be touched by human hands. But I've since come to realize that's not what Jesus was saying at all. In fact, in the next few verses, he invites Thomas to touch his hands and touch his side. You see, the issue wasn't that Mary touched him. It was how she had touched him. Mary clung to Jesus. The word translated cling means to attach or to fasten. Jesus was in essence saying to Mary, don't get attached to my physical presence. I won't be around in this bodily form much longer. The type of interaction we've had up till now isn't a permanent arrangement. You see, Jesus is about to ascend to his Father. That doesn't mean his relationship with Mary will end. Oh, it will never end. 
but it will change. And Mary will have to learn to relate to Jesus in another way, in a spiritual way. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus made an astonishing statement. It it boggles my brain whenever I read it. He told his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now wait a minute. How could Jesus' departure ever be seen as an advantage? Imagine, bases are loaded, Braves trail three to two. It's Brian McCann's turn at bat. But instead of grabbing some timber and driving in the winning runs, the Braves' best hitter, he tells his team that it's to their advantage that he leaves. How can that be? And how could Jesus' exodus ever be seen as a plus? Here's the answer. Jesus' departure paved the way for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus was one man in one place at one time with just two hands and just two legs. But the Holy Spirit lives in every Christian, in every country, in every century. That means he has hordes of hands and legions of legs. If Mary had succeeded in clinging to Jesus, if our Lord had remained earthbound and Mary bound and Jerusalem bound, then today his attention and aid would be limited. Jesus, though, opted for a different relationship. He ascended to the Father so that he could return to us in the Spirit. I love what Augustine prayed. Jesus, you ascended from before our eyes and we turn back grieving only to find you in our hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, will come to Mary and dwell where evil spirits once lived. She will continue to follow Jesus, but rather than rely on her eyes and her ears and her feet to keep up with Him, from now on, she'll use her heart. Rather than tighten her grip, Mary will need to strengthen her faith. When Mary clung to Jesus, she wanted to hold on to what she had. She desired a tangible attachment to her Lord. But Jesus had a better idea. In fact, it's His plan for you and me. This is why He tells Mary, But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. You see, the call of Christ is faith, not fasten. In Christ, God came into the world. On earth, Jesus came to troubled towns and hopeless villages and lost people. And today, Jesus still comes. God comes to us. But He does so in the person of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't abandoned His creation. Jesus isn't just hanging out in heaven aloof from our pain. No, He comes to us, but via the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed, though, the contrast in the way that Christians talk about Jesus and then talk about the Holy Spirit, if they even reference Him at all? It's obvious we feel much more comfortable around Jesus than we do the Holy Spirit. I mean, we speak of loving and serving and walking with Jesus, but have you ever said you love the Holy Spirit? Or that you wanted to walk with Him? I mean, we're boldly allied to Jesus, but why is it we shy away from the Holy Spirit? Listen to our Christian music. Jesus is the favorite topic. Few songs are sung about the Holy Spirit. 
And you'll hear even fewer sermons. Pastors are quick to find inspiration in the parables and miracles of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's work in the book of Acts, it remains a mystery to most Christians. You see, people are quick to relate to Jesus. He was one of us. He lived among us. He took on flesh and blood and bone. He is as human as you and me. Jesus bled and wept and got weary. His stomach even growled. He walked our streets and ate our food. He attended weddings and funerals. He dealt with sick people and paid taxes and walked from place to place and even went fishing. He was a lot better at it than I am. But he still went fishing. In so many ways, I can relate to Jesus. It's easy for me to picture him in my mind and imagine how his voice might have sounded. I gravitate to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, he's more of a quandary. He's more difficult for me to figure out. It's easier for me to relate to flesh and bone than it is to spirit. And when I look in the rearview mirror of my life, the churches I grew up in sure didn't help my dilemma. In fact, we were scared to death of the Holy Spirit. In those days, southern churches, they read the old King James Version, which meant that you didn't even use the term Holy Spirit. We called God the Holy Ghost. I could relate to God the Father. I had a father. He was a good one. I could relate to God the Son. I was somebody's son. But God the Ghost? Give me a break. I associated ghosts with haunted houses, not the house of God. I heard Holy Ghost and thought, who are you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters. Where's Aykroyd and Murray when I need them? Imagine a 12-year-old boy being told he needs the Holy Ghost. It was downright scary. Asking to be filled with the Holy Ghost seemed eerily similar with being possessed. Would God sneak up on me and shout, boo? As a kid, the closest I came to relating to the Holy Ghost was Casper. You remember Casper? There was a cartoon character, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Sadly, that's what I thought of when I heard the preacher say, the Holy Ghost. God is Father I could grasp. Jesus was real to me, but the Holy Spirit was a tough idea to wrap my mind around. And many Christians share my dilemma. It's tough for earthbound mortals to cozy up to spirit. Like Mary, we're a tactile breed. We like stuff we can hold and touch. This is why folks still like to carry cash in their pocket. I mean, they like to feel some real money back there in their wallet. I still prefer a paycheck over direct deposit. I want to hold my earnings in my hand. All of us gravitate toward the tangible and the visible. You know, when theologians discuss human beings, they use this term dichotomy. We're a dichotomy. You and I are two parts. We're physical and we're spiritual. There's a part of you that's temporal. Your body will die. That's the physical part of you. But there's another part of you that's spiritual, that will live forever. Your spirit or your soul is eternal. Every human being is one part flesh and another part spirit. But when man sinned, this dual capacity became loaded to one side. Think of it this way. You know, most folks are either right-hand dominant or left-hand dominant. 
Every now and then, you'll run across a person who goes left or right equally well. We call them ambidextrous. That's how God made Adam and Eve. They were the perfect balance of spiritual and physical. I mean, Adam and Eve had a sixth sense. They walked with God in the cool of the day. Their spiritual sensitivity was as acute as their other five senses. On the physical side, they could taste and smell and see and hear and feel. But on the spiritual side, they knew God. You see, before sin entered the world, man was a two-stroke engine firing on both cylinders. But when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, his spiritual cylinder threw a rod. He tilted. Rather than ambidextrous, he became flesh-dominant. Fallen man has become spiritually stunted and physically oriented. This is why we gravitate towards sight and touch and sound, and flavors, and aromas, all the while we're dull spiritually. Even after we become Christians, our tendency is still toward the palpable. We fight with the flesh. We're weighted toward the world. The tangible is what grabs our attention. And this is true even when it comes to religion. The true God isn't constrained by time or space. He's never limited to what can be seen or felt or heard. God is too big for our five senses. Yet throughout history, human beings have gravitated toward gods that were physical, invisible. Apparently, spirit is not enough. We like to pack our gods with stuffing. They're called idols. These are gods with knobs. Gods that humans can grab hold to and fasten on to. You can fasten on to an idol. People like meaty, fleshly, grabbable gods. Of all the ancients, only the Hebrews worshipped the invisible God. And they did it ever so imperfectly. I mean, the Hebrews in the desert, the golden calf of Jeroboam, the Baal of the Phoenicians. Over and over, misled worshippers rejected the God who is spirit for a God that they could touch. All of history really teaches us that human beings are chronic idolaters. Still today, empty people try to fill spiritual needs with what's seeable and what's feelable. They worship luxury and power and authority and even celebrity. We have our American idols. Even people who want to follow God look for Him in the wrong places. They insist on a concrete spirituality that has no loose ends. They want a God who's all figured out, not a God who's free. They want a religion with no uncertainty, no ambiguity, where trust is never necessary, where you know exactly where you stand at all times. You see, people want religion that yields substantive results. You plug in a prayer and you get back an answer. It doesn't matter if it's true or if it's God's will. They just want solutions they can deposit, checks they can cash. That's what they want from God, not more promises. The thing we fear most is that God might just want us to have faith. In fact, isn't this what Mary wanted? A God she could see and hold on to and keep in her pocket? She threw her arms around Jesus, determined to never let Him go. Mary wants to keep Jesus close and contained and within arm's reach. 
As long as he was in her grasp, she had him. Jesus was hers. But the goal of true religion is not for us to own God. It's for God to own us. In Jesus, God became a man. But God is still the invisible, ethereal, eternal spirit. And this is why Mary's grip wasn't tight enough to hold Jesus. He wouldn't stay. It was necessary for him to ascend to the Father. The eternal Son took on flesh and blood to bridge the gap between God and man. Jesus wanted to be a God to whom his people could relate. But as soon as God took a body, there were people who wanted to nail him down. Mary wasn't the only person who tried to limit Jesus and hold him back and keep him down. This was the goal of the Jewish leaders and the Roman politicians and all the hard heart since who fear his authority. Little people questioned Jesus' claims. They doubted his deity. They were determined to nail him down even if the nails they used were real. And this is why Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. He wanted to prove that no one can nail him down. Not then, not now. And this is what Jesus is teaching Mary. He doesn't fit between your fingers. Jesus is more than a handful. He's bigger than that. He's bigger than even life itself. No hand can restrain him. No box can contain him. Jesus took a human body and he's still a man. But today, he spills over and fills the heavens. The Lord Jesus can never be limited or reduced or corralled. Jesus willingly nailed himself to our plight, but then he rose again and ascended to his Father. And today, his spirit moves about free and unfettered. And from now on, Mary will have to relate to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. As I look back in the rearview mirror of my life, I see where I've been a lot like Mary. I've clung to Jesus mentally while he was moving about spiritually. How can you truly follow Jesus if you neglect the Holy Spirit? Earlier I mentioned the confusion that occurred in my 12-year-old mind whenever I heard the preacher talk about the Holy Ghost. And yet today I've come to appreciate that terminology. I now think that the King James translators were not that far off. The third person of the Trinity is a lot like a Holy Ghost. In popular lore, ghosts are spiritual beings, the souls of the departed. Ghosts are depicted as airy and ethereal and intangible and mystical. Their spirits no longer bound by flesh and blood. You can't grab hold of a ghost, snap his photo, but a ghost won't appear in the negative. They're impossible to detect with physical apparatus. Ghosts are paranormal and otherworldly. And the Holy Spirit shares many of those same traits. In a sense, the Holy Ghost is the spirit of a departed person. Jesus departed this earth and He sent the Spirit in His stead. The New Testament refers to the Holy Ghost as the Spirit of Christ. Certainly, the Holy Spirit is God in His own right, but He reflects the heart and nature and spirit of Jesus. This is why Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another comforter. But the word Jesus chose there means another of the same type. 
The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. He's Jesus, but no longer bound by the forces and laws of nature. Gravity and proximity no longer hold Him. He now moves as He pleases. And the Spirit moves like the wind, like a ghost. He's airy and breezy. You know, in both Old Testament Hebrew and in New Testament Greek, the word spirit literally means air or breath or wind. In Hebrew, it's the word ruach. In the Greek, it's pneuma. We use the term pneumatic tools. What are they? They're hammers and wrenches that are powered by air. Think about the wind for a moment. It's amazing how something invisible can be so powerful. A hurricane can level landscapes. You feel it. But you can't see the wind. And so it is with God's Spirit. He's airy and intangible, but He's real. And presumably like a ghost, the wind has a mind of its own. You see this at Wrigley Field in downtown Chicago. One inning, the wind is blowing right in the batter's face. He tries to spit and wets himself. The next inning, the wind is at its back. Balls fly out of the stadium on the jet stream. Here's the point. The wind is unpredictable. It changes directions at will. And this is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3 verse 8. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. God is like a ghost. He rides on the wind. He too is unpredictable. Over and over in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is linked to wind or breath. When Jesus imparted His Spirit to His disciples, we're told in John 20, verse 22, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the church, the disciples in the upper room, they heard a sound like a rushing mighty wind. The Holy Spirit is wind-like. He's ghost-like. He's intangible, but He's indomitable. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman by Jacob's well. Possessing all knowledge, he knew her sordid history. She'd been passed around by the men of Samaria like a water bottle on a football field. Five different husbands had chewed her up and spit her out. But Jesus cared about this woman. He promised her living water. He wants to slake her spiritual thirst. But that's when she tries to change the subject. She, she goes theological. You know, in ancient times, people worshipped God on mountaintops. The Samaritans, they had their mountain. The Jews, they worshipped on their mountain in Jerusalem. And so she asked Jesus, which is the right mountain? If she'd asked that question 50 years earlier, Jerusalem would have been the correct answer. But now that Jesus is on the scene, he says neither group gets it. For Jesus explains to the woman what Mary had learned. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit. And truth. You see, Mary assumed that closeness to God was achieved logistically through proximity. Some of us have that misconception. We think by going to this church service or going to that service or being in this group or in this atmosphere, we can experience God. But not so. Jesus corrected her. The way to intimacy with God is through the Holy Spirit. God comes. He came to this woman. And He comes to us. But because God is spirit, you and I have to relate to Him in a spiritual way. And this requires faith. If you want to know God, 
You have to have faith. To follow what is seen, I would focus. To follow what is heard, I would listen. To follow what is tasteable, I would savor. To follow what is rational, I would study. But the only way to follow God's Spirit is to believe. You can't grab a ghost. You have to follow the Holy Ghost by faith. I am a man grounded in everyday life. My two feet are planted firmly on terra firma. I got a house and a mortgage and cars and a wife and some kids. I pay my taxes and buy groceries and put shoes on everybody's feet, especially my wife's. I'm a down-to-earth guy. Ordinarily, I would never waste time chasing a ghost. Hey, tell me about the carpenter from Nazareth. I can relate to a working man. Tell me that through his bravery and sacrifice, he died to save the world. I would be drawn to such a man. I'd open up my Bible to learn of this man. But try to convince me to follow a ghost, and I'd think you were crazy. And this is the problem with modern Christians. We have built concrete, materialistic, rational lives. And we've left little room for the mystical and the supernatural in our living. You see, part of the Christian life is believing the historical record of what Jesus did and said. But faith doesn't stop there. For God comes to us like a ghost. A holy ghost. He comes spiritually. And we need faith to walk in a spiritual way, we want to be wide open to the Holy Spirit. I'm a down-to-earth guy, but I follow an out-of-this-world God. I want to close with a story from the life of the prophet Elijah. The man of God challenged the prophets of Baal to a showdown. You remember the story? Whoever sent fire from heaven, Baal or Yahweh, he would be worshipped. Well, the idol proved impotent. While Elijah's God burned up the sacrifice. On this day, God supplied the nation with a little shock and awe. But that's not the end of the story. Elijah iced a whole army of false prophets, but he was scared of one woman. When he heard that the wicked Queen Jezebel had put a, out a hit on him, he tucked tail and he fled to the hills. He threw a pity party and made himself the guest of honor. At this earlier showdown, Elijah had been in tune with the Holy Spirit. His faith had kicked in. He was functioning on a spiritual frequency. He believed in what he couldn't see. He was trusting an invisible God to come and work mightily. But now, Elijah tilts back toward the physical world. And his faith vanishes. His senses start to work over time in faith's place. His ears perk up at Jezebel's threats. His eyes see no other prophet carrying God's banner, so he assumes, he assumes he's all alone. His stomach even growls. His body grows weary. He crawls into a cave. And here God teaches us how He comes to discouraged people. God calls Elijah out of the cave. And we're told a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces but I love how the biblical writer follows it up. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake rumbled the mountain. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
Then a fire scorched the slope, burned the side of the mountain. But again, the writer says, the Lord was not in the fire. But listen to his next words. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God didn't come to Elijah in the storm or the quake or the fire. He came to him in a more subtle way, almost ghost-like. He whispered. And you have to be quiet and spiritual and listening to hear a whisper. I'm afraid churches today cultivate the wrong atmosphere. We have flashing lights and big sound systems and smoke machines and props and technology. And there's nothing wrong with these things per se. But the biblical writer might just pin, the Lord was not in the slideshow. Rather than encourage folks to be spiritual and to be open to the whispers of the Holy Ghost, churches today try to blow people away. Or they try to rock their world. Or they try to fire them up. But God wasn't in the storm or the quake or the fire. Christians today, we like fireworks and spectacles, but what we need is to be more spiritual. Psalm 46 verse 10 invites us, Be still and know that I am God. Over the next few weeks, I'm hoping to tilt us toward the spiritual side of life. We don't need more to see. We don't need more to touch. What we need is the Holy Ghost. When the Father rained down fire on Elijah's sacrifice, God came. When the Son implanted Himself in the womb of a virgin, God came. But today, God comes to His people in a different way. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must do so in spirit and in truth. God doesn't show up in the storm or the quake or the fire, the tangible and the visible. He shows up spiritually. God comes to hearts that believe. Rather than hold on to Jesus, Mary had to let go and trust Him. In Luke 17, the Pharisees, they questioned Jesus. He had been preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. But they saw none of the trappings associated with a kingdom. No palaces, no budgets, no armies, no thrones. The Pharisees, like all men are prone to do, were tilting toward the material and the visible. They were looking for an outward political kingdom. And that's when Jesus explained, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. God's kingdom is spiritual. God, the ghost, moves behind the scenes. He moves into people's hearts. And He speaks into their lives through His still, small voice. I'm praying that we'll look past the tangible, concrete world to which we've become so accustomed and we'll realize there's more. There's a Holy Ghost. He's real. He's God. He comes to us. Let's be open. Let's be still. Let's have faith. And let's make our lives accessible 
to the Holy Spirit.